Yarra Libraries acknowledges the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung as the traditional owners of the land this podcast was recorded on, pays tribute to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in Yarra and elsewhere, and gives respect to Elders past, present and emerging. Welcome back to the Yarra Libraries podcast. As you know, our branches are currently closed we've been working hard to bring our planned events directly to you. Author talks, workshops, writing groups, story times and book clubs all in the comfort of your own home. As part of that process, I'm very pleased to bring you this interview from author Ronnie Scott in partnership with online journal Kilia Darlings. The Kilia Darlings First Book Club celebrates a debut author and their work every month. And while it's a shame we won't be hosting this month's resulting discussion in branch, there are definite benefits to this author talk at home business. So make yourself a hot drink, claim the best armchair, and listen to First Book Club host Dylan Cregan ask Ronnie Scott about his novel, The Adversary. Today I'm here with author Ronnie Scott on the phone, whose book is The Adversary, and it's our first book club pick for the month of April. Welcome, Ronnie. Thanks for calling me on the phone in these <laughs> strange, so me, strange times. Um, I love the phrase, these strange, strange times. Yeah, I've, I've heard it abbreviated to um, TUT for these uncertain times. <laughs> Um, so we're going to start our conversation with a reading and I'll let you go ahead with that. Okay, cool. Um, I, I reckon I'll just read a few minutes of the, of a scene that starts on page 45 of this novel, The Adversary, because it's set at Fitzroy pool. And, uh, even though it's on page 45, it still kind of sets up some of the characters and the, the dynamics. So I guess all you need to know before we go into the scene is that, uh, the book has an unnamed narrator. Um, he's kind of 21. He lives in a house with his best friend, Dan, and he's a very like reluctant person. He doesn't like to do almost anything. He would just like to be friends with Dan and be by himself and hang out in his house. But Dan has a boyfriend named Lachlan, um, and Dan is kind of dragging him out and trying to get him to meet other guys. Um, whether that's kind of romantic possibilities or friendship possibilities or a little bit of both. Um, and they've met a couple of people the previous night uh, and the narrator is about to run into them again at the Fitzroy pool. Okay, so this is from The Adversary. Before I'd let my membership to Brunswick Baths expire, a trainer had written on the whiteboard, remember, summer bodies are made in winter. It sounded like an old saw trotted out by some Scandinavian detective waiting for the lake to thaw and divulge its many bodies, creating a grisly wealth of summer overtime. Now, though, climbing the bleachers at the Fitzroy pool, I saw it had a troubling meaning of a different kind. While I had been imagining this Scandinavian detective, other boys had been taking the advice as it was meant, girding girding themselves against the risk of sagginess and scrawniness and readying their bodies to greet the sunny world. Dan and Lachlan were already up there on the bleachers, perched on towels and gazing at me through their sun-glassed eyes. Neither of their towels looked particularly beachy, but instead seemed lifted from some fancy hotel in the same thick royal green as their dressing gowns. I couldn't imagine how warm and lovely it would be to cover myself in these towels in dead of winter, nor how awful it would be to do this after exiting the water on a too hot, windless day, sweating and chlorined and sticky with sunscreen, squinting up at the gym complex that hulked over the pool. Like many aspects of Dan's life under Lachlan, the towels seemed like souvenirs from a weird other world. I nodded to them, saw a space on the tier below them, reasonably man-sized, and made my way towards it. 
To spread a beach towel on these bleachers was to perform an art. It required a keen eye for towel-shaped opportunity and no undue squeamishness for disadvantaging others. As I dropped my own scrappy blue-green spotted towel and kicked it, kicked at it to spread it, the shape beside my towel rolled over and revealed itself, inscrutable behind its own pair of sunglasses, these ones dramatically large and bug-eyed. I paused mid-crouch. Hey, I said. He paused too. Hey, Chris L. said. I looked up at Dan and Lachlan. We had already said hi to each other, but I was getting into the groove. Hey, I said. Hey, Lachlan said. My sunglasses were always cheap, and the last ones I'd bought had broken several months ago. There was nothing left to say and nothing left to do but take off my shoes and shirt so as to complete the sense of exposure. There were more gaps on the bleachers than it looked from below, but it was hard with noise and dense with sizzly bodies. I was lucky to have found a space at all. Only when the American was halfway up the bleachers did I realize my terrible mistake. As if to reintroduce the idea of his Americanness, he was holding two burger shapes in Lord of the Fries wrappers. Obviously, having left the bleachers in order to pick them up, his towel draped off his shoulders in a pretense of modesty. He was flip-flopping up the bleachers in a pair of thongs. I held my hands out, palms up, sorry. Hey, no friends in the towel game, he said. This is Vivian, said Dan. We've met, said Vivian. Yeah, I said, rolling over and squinting up at Dan. We are friends in the towel game. So his name was Vivian, which I vaguely knew was one of those names that was actually old-timey masculine, like Shirley or Evelyn, and only in the present world did it sound slightly deranged. Dan was in one of his unimpressible moods. What's the towel game, he said, when it was entirely clear what we were talking about. It was interesting how that idiom, no friends in the X game, was something they must have had in America too, which only made it seem particularly pointless that Dan was pretending not to know what it meant. It's this, I said, and said, Chris L., would you mind moving your towel? Chris L. swooped his lenses over the bleachers over the day. I don't mind at all, he said. I smiled at Dan. Thank you, Chris L., and when he'd done so, I moved my towel, which made it kind of bunchy, but the towel and I were both still dry, so bunchiness was fine. There, I said, and Vivian set his own towel down next to me, stretched it out as far as possible, and sat down where he could. I was very impressed with Vivian and Chris L. for going along with me, although I was unsure what it was I'd been trying to demonstrate. That's it. Thank you. That was great. So I actually forgot my copy of the book when I came to do this interview with Ronnie, (laughs) and that is the exact passage that I had picked out too. Yes. (laughs) It's so good. So can you give me an elevator pitch for The Adversary? Yes, I can give you an elevator pitch for The Adversary. It's a story that takes place over eight weeks, um, and it's the story of, as I said before, these two best friends, the narrator and Dan, who have met each other, I guess, at the time in your life when you have finally... But it feels like finally um, kind of found your people. And because you've found your people, you sort of throw yourselves at each other really hard. Um, and when we meet them at the start of the book, sorry, this is kind of a long elevator ride. Um, <laughs> they have kind of exhausted each other, but they, you know, they still mean a lot to each other. So they just need to change their friendship. And I guess the story of the book, the action of the book is towards them changing their friendship um, in whatever kind of bumpy way they go about it. There's a really wonderful quote that's, I think it's on the inside of the book's jacket, actually. I was an agent of Dan, a captive of his, really. 
I went where he wanted me and I did as he wanted. And for a long time in this way, I was happy. So it's like a pretty specific friendship dynamic, between, especially between two <laughs> housemates. Uh, what made you want to write about a relationship like this? Right. Um, I think because, well, okay, I don't know that I've ever been around a relationship exactly like this. Like <laughs> it's called the adversary because they, like, again, they kind of push, they push pull each other. Like I think that you get a sense when they talk to each other that they're challenging each other um, and kind of, you know, giving each other grief, but also trying to like to help each other drill down into their experiences and figure out things about the world and figure out things about who they are. They kind of hold each other to account in this really, uh, I think, like rewarding but unfair way. And I am interested in best friendships, I guess, because it's it's not the model of friendship that I have. Um, I think that I like I have a friendship circle that I love and, uh, you know, and, and close friends and I have professional relationships that I value a lot. Um, but I um, have often been around these kind of best friendships, which are. Um, I think that they require a lot of people and I think that they give a lot to people and they require management, um, you know, and really kind of careful thought and careful consideration in the same way that I guess family relationships do um, or, um, you know, not that other kinds of friendships don't, but there's an intensity and a proximity and a, and a constancy about them that I think is really fun to think about. And it just puts them both under pressure, really, like when they're around each other all the time when they, as I said before, are accountable to each other in ways that we're not always to friends, or maybe we always are, but it's often not on the surface. Um, you know, they can be really rude to each other as well. And yeah, I thought that that was an interesting thing to kind of imagine and and investigate. Because a lot of the conflict between the protagonist and Dan sort of comes from the fact that Dan has changed and the protagonist hasn't. And you, you do see these yes. sort of before snippets of Dan and he's, he's a very different person just a couple of years before the, the action of the eight weeks, I suppose. Yeah, the narrator thinks that Dan was cooler, I think, even though he never <laughs> really said, like, articulate, articulates that. I think because he... He has come from um, from a coastal town outside of Melbourne, and he has come to university and he's met this guy that he, you know, is kind of before the action of the book, uh, sort of had a crush on and kind of tried to, you know, to think about dating or sleeping with, but it ended up being a friendship, and uh, and he's really kind of committed to this idea of. Dan and Dan's principles and ways of living, which I think are not actually like that unusual his principles or ways of living he's just a really critical person um and the narrator is now in the situation with dan who has his boyfriend lachlan and his dan is is probably a couple of years older i sort of don't really say what um what age they are but i i think of the narrator as being 2021 and dan as being uh you know 23 or something like that and he's got a job and he's uh, he's thinking about slightly different things and uh, it's not necessarily true that these outside circumstances in his life are changing him. Um, it could be that he has changed and has kind of gathered circumstances around him to match and meet that change. And uh, yeah, I think the most telling thing about their relationship in the face of change is that the narrator isn't just kind of uncomfortable with the fact that Dan has changed. He's like appalled. He's angry at the <laughs> fact that Dan has changed. Um, yeah. And, and I guess we've all had that feeling, whether it's in a friendship or something else where, um, you know, you get the sense that the ground has shifted when you weren't quite paying attention. I think that we meet him in sort of a bewildered state. Absolutely. 
And what about the dynamic of the wider friendship group that Dan's sort of pushing the narrator into that you you talked about in that um, passage there? Right. Uh, yeah. I so the, there's only six characters in the book. Um, it's like a very very limited range. And I mean, when I started the book, it was even more limited. There were three characters, and then one day there were four, and then eventually there were six. And I kind of that seemed like the right number. But they're they're pretty similar to Dan and the narrator. Like they're similar similar ageish group. Um, they're gay. They're male. They're white. They're middle class. And I really kind of treated. Oh, this isn't quite fair to say, but I, I mostly treated the narrator and Dan as like the round characters at the center of the story. And I thought the other four characters were a way of um, kind of highlighting different options of of building a friendship, of building a relationship with someone. And there's there's kind of two characters who are a little bit closer to um, to the narrator and Dan in in their general vibe and their general makeup. Um, there's a guy named Chris L who, uh, he's more feminine. He wears shawls. That's how you know. Uh, and he, um, he's, a, I guess when I think of like Dan being kind of critical and brittle and, uh, and, and higher energy, and then the narrator being kind of dis- disaffected and, um, and also really anxious in that way that he shares with Dan, Sometimes um, Chris L is kind of sulky and low key, so he's a different energy to the to the energy that the narrator and Dan have. I've never I've, I haven't kind of thought about it like this before, but they <laughs> but their their characteristics sort of meet in the middle of the with the narrator um, between Dan and Chris L, mm. and then. Uh, there's Lachlan, who's Dan's boyfriend. We don't know a lot about Lachlan. Um, there's a guy that lives in Richmond who doesn't have a name. Well, the narrator doesn't know his name, just like we don't know the narrators. And then there's an older American guy named Vivian, uh, who we probably know the least about. But he, I think the narrator kind of latches on to him as maybe a substitute for Dan that ends up being a bit of an imperfect substitute. Did you ever have a moment of panic thinking you were going to release a book in 2020 where all the characters were middle-class white and male? I think I, I, I had more panic probably about race in the book than mm. I did about gender in the book. And I, I think that um, like the simple answer for that is that probably because I am myself a gay man, it, you think a little bit... Um, again, maybe this is unfair, but I, but my sense is that you think a little bit more fluidly about gender than you think about race, because I guess growing up um, like in any way queer and in my case gay, you you are kind of thinking about about different gender roles even in the back of your head when you don't realize it. But also, growing up as a white person, being a white person, there are lots of invitations around you at all times to not think very carefully about race. So when I started the book, I actually made the decision super early on that they would be um, like uh, primarily or totally male cast because I, I kind of just knew from writing early scenes that I could say interesting things about gender by doing that. Like I, like <clears throat> I remember thinking, oh, okay, if I had a book with a range of different gender expressions, um, I could say something interesting about gender, but I, I was pretty sure that I could do it this way as well so that was like an, a kind of an early natural decision um and certainly like i i 
I did worry about it at different points as I went through and I tested it with different readers. And there were times when like, I thought that I would make it a clearer statement by having like the rest of the book be this, this slightly strange vacuum, like where there wouldn't be kind of uh, uh, even like incidental occurrences of female characters throughout the book. Um, and then sometimes I thought, well, no, that's like just incredibly bizarre. So like there were moments where I had kind of female characters pop into different scenes and that just felt like a way of showing that there were females in the world of the book. Um, so there were, there were lots of different kind of missteps and things that I had to do by trial and error. And then I, I eventually, I hope kind of landed in the middle where it looks purposeful. And hopefully if you read it, you think, Oh, there's probably a reason that these characters are this kind of limited world that we're experiencing. Um, I think that that there was a challenge in in thinking well over over this eight weeks like the narrator starts off so so narrow right like this a, a super super myopic view of the world um, or I don't know if you call it myopic if he's fixed on one person which is Dan um, and then over the course of the book he gets kind of prized open and he gets like a slightly wider view of what it is to be a human in a society. Um, and you kind of can't have a character and their circumstances change completely over the course of that time, but you have to gesture towards it. Um, and I think that it was quite fun to have this very like resistant, very reluctant character slowly dragged into experiences that were a little bit more different than the ones that he knew over the course of the book. I think what it does, I think it definitely does that. And what it does really well that you possibly couldn't have done with a wider cast of characters is is sort of show those platonic queer relationships really well and the way that it is it is a kind of masculinity but it's not one that necessarily crops up a lot in fiction right yeah i i think that i i really really wanted to have a friendship at the center of the book that wasn't like that was between gay men but that wasn't to to like to a majority um, majority extent, if you can say that, um, sexual. Like, mm-hmm. I, I know that there's little elements of, of sexual attraction in there, but I mostly really wanted to have them, yeah, to have them like each other platonically and to have that be the thing that they had to wrestle with. Um, yeah, and I, I'd like, I think that I could have I done that with female characters, but I, I also think that the, because his worldview is so narrow and he's so like intense about things and has no perspective. I, th- I think that the, the less like the less perspective was in the book, the more it kind of made sense. And I think that was one of the reasons that it had to take place over eight weeks as well. Mm. Um, and also even characters like Vivian, who, uh, dem- you know, are really demographically similar to the other five characters, but a little bit different. Like you kind of have to keep them out, like at the edges of the story because the more perspective anyone in this book can offer the narrator, I think the less emotional sense that he makes. So I, you kind of want it to feel a little bit like a hall of mirrors, I guess. Mm. Um, and there's also quite a lot of specificity in the location. So it's like a very Melbourneian novel. Um, is that something that you always wanted to do as a writer to kind of write a Melbourne novel? Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, I did. Um, I th- well, not always, but I, I moved to Melbourne when I was older than this narrator like I had a very different um, experience of being 2021 which he is like I was in Brisbane 
uh, I was in an artistic community, which he's not. Like, I think that these are sort of hipsterish gay men who are probably like connected to artistic communities, but that's not the main makeup of who they are and what they do. Um, and I was in a really sort of mixed group of people with lots of people in couples and lots of straight people. And, uh, and I really kind of got, maybe when I moved to Melbourne and when I was a little bit older and when I was still in this quite different life, I, um, I, I guess when you're whatever whatever you're writing, you're probably looking for like the right vantage, um, even if you're not doing this consciously. And I think that I was in this space where I could imagine having grown up in a different way, and that made it really easy to kind of indulge whatever um, uh, whatever impulses lead to the writing of fiction. So for me, it was like uh, thinking, well, what when I when I felt this way about um, about people or when I felt this way about landscape, like forming those intense but very kind of fraught connections like he does to, to different spaces like the Fitzroy Pool or like uh, like a bar like the Retreat or like a certain street that he rides a bike down. Like I, I think that, that you have a bit of an outsider status when you have come from somewhere else, which helps you see something a little bit naively but also like you're close enough to connect to it in a way that um, that helps you imagine or interrogate it. The next question I was going to ask you is about sort of making specific settings universal, but, but I think you kind of just almost answered it because that sort of, to me, seems like a way that you could look at a very specific city and you talk about things like, you know, how annoying it is to cross Melbourne and, as you say, the Fitzroy Pool but you make them feel universal. And I think that comes up in the passage you read, actually, that, it, you know, you're at the Fitzroy pool, but you're also just at a public pool. But it kind of sounds like, you know, that naivety is how you're able to make that feel a bit more universal. Maybe. I, yeah, I do think that, that with specificity and universality, like, I think that often the way to get to, to something that feels universal is by being detailed and concrete. Um, like I think that we can't, like we we talk all the time about relatability and we talk all the time about empathy in fiction and how you know fiction creates empathy in readers. But I think that we're pretty empathetic creatures anyway. And it's it's not like I think that if you understand what a character wants or if you understand the way that they see the world, it's we find it pretty irresistible to connect to them, whether we like them or not, or whether we are willing to or not. So. Yeah, I think that specificity is one of the is one of the best things that you can do in fiction, and I tried to do it with like no, I guess not even Melbourne, right? But in a mm. north of Melbourne and just a pretty narrow little circle of it. Yeah, that sort of inner northern life, mm. <laughs> you could call it. Um, so, as well as being a great writer, you're also a very great writing teacher, and you were once my writing teacher. Um, <laughs> so when you write, do you find that you follow the advice you give to your students or are you a kind of do as I say, not as I do approach? Uh, I think I, you would, ha you would just have to tell me what advice I give to students <laughs> because I am usually just doing this and like on the back foot and figuring out what I think as I say it and probably contradicting myself. Yeah. I think that the best advice that, that, you can give to students is just to try to write a lot and read a lot because the more you write, like the more options you give yourself and the more willing you are to try things out that you'll end up trashing because it's, because it doesn't make sense or it's useless or you haven't 
like it hasn't done the thing that you thought it would. And that's just so much, I, I, like I at least find that easier than thinking conceptually, than thinking through like what something will look like in a hundred words time. I would rather just write it fairly thoughtlessly and then, you know, sit back and look at what I've done and try to fix it. Um, and that's definitely the way that I worked on the adversary. Like I often had to write a whole draft and look at it and think, well, what was I trying to say here? And what did I really end up saying? And then sort of take some time away from it and give it to different readers and get different perspectives and then sort of go back and have to kind of start it from scratch and incorporate bits that I've done before. Like I, like I think that, well, I know that there are people out there who are really quite good conceptual thinkers and don't have to do that like material work to get to the end of the story. Um, but I think that I, I like that method because it's fairly foolproof and you just, you, you, all you have to do is write um, and writing can be really painful, but I also think the more you do it, the less painful it is. <laughs> so I definitely say, I, like I say that to students and I say that because it kind of works for me. Um, but I'm sure that I say a lot of things that like, I think it is great advice, but which I would never do. <laughs> Uh, you'll have to pay more attention from now on, I guess. <laughs> so as well as writing, you said reading is something that helps. Who are some authors that you take inspiration from? Oh, amazing. Uh, I I have had this kind of cool experience in the last couple of years of discovering Anita Bruckner, um, who is like a British novelist who won the Booker Prize once, um, but is still in some ways like a, like known, she's one of those people who is known to be unappreciated more than she is not known, I guess. And I heard of her because of a great podcast called Backlisted, where, um, where the two hosts who are in Britain um, and a rotating series of guests, they, like, they'll talk about books that are out of print or that are classics um, and often have some really surprising choices. And, one of them just love, love, loves Anita Bruckner and spoke about her lots over a bunch of different episodes. Um, and finally, they did the book Look at Me by Anita Bruckner. Uh, and the, you know, the other regular co-hosts and the guest hosts were just blown away by how amazing it was. And it was just so satisfying as a listener to see that, like, this person had been talking about their love of Anita Bruckner for a bunch of different episodes. And then to see, like, the respect that this author got from the other people on the podcast so that's like a very kind of 2018 2019 way of discovering a new favorite author i went and read anita bruckner and i was so ready to love anita bruckner and i loved <laughs> anita bruckner um look at me is a fantastic book um it's it's a really interior really sad book it's about a very lonely person who gets caught up with a fabulous and mysterious couple um, and it doesn't end well for her but uh, but it's also really like funny and brittle uh, and and I, I, I don't know critical no critical is the right word but perceptive as well and uh, yeah I, I, I just love reading something that was so dark but so um, so kind of mirthful about its darkness and so quiet as well um, and I and I think because I I got really into her a few years ago and she's got about 30 novels and because I was sort of halfway through the adversary at that point um yeah and a lot of her novels are in first person as well that kind of ended up infecting the voice a little bit in a really positive way I'm gonna have to read that because because literally everyone I speak to says Anita Bruckner <laughs> yes. is a great person Excellent. to read um I've got one more question for you um for people listening to this episode who've already read your book and loved it what are some books that you think they should read? 
Oh, that's a that's a really fun question. Um, <laughs> ah, like so if they if they loved the adversary, like mm. what might they? I wish I hadn't said Anita Bruckner for the last answer. <laughs> you can um, say Anita Bruckner but, again. That's that's allowed. Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> Anita Bruckner, but um, but 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 no, I have to think of something else. I feel like I should add value to the Anita <laughs> Bruckner comment. Um, Muriel Spark, I thought about a lot when I was writing this book and trying to think of a tone that I would like to to get, and I don't think that I got that tone. Like she's very like uh sort of gentle and wry at the same time and also like like weird in places that you don't expect so uh there's a couple of books by anita bruckner uh, by anita bruckner and also a couple of books by muriel spark that i think people would enjoy if they liked the adversary but i also think that i hold them in such high esteem that i'm reluctant to recommend them right after <laughs> the adversary well, look, I, I think you should because it's a really wonderful book and it's such a funny book and it's just such a clever, well-observed novel and I loved reading it and I think everyone else will too. Thank you so much, Ellen. This was really great. You've been listening to an episode of the Our Libraries podcast presented in partnership with the Kilyard Arlings First Book Club. Thank you to Ellen, Kilyard Arlings and Ronnie Scott for their time. We have copies of The Adversary in Processing right now so keep your eye on the Yarra Libraries newsletter and social media channels to be the first to know when we are able to get new releases to you again. In the meantime, if you're keen to read it immediately, now is a great time to support your local bookstore. Many are offering free or cheap delivery right now. If you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to listen to our author events with other First Book Club authors, like Sam George Allen, Laura Elizabeth Woollett, Elizabeth Kuyper, and Laura McPhee-Brown. Or check out the Kooya Darlings podcast too. If what you're missing is the chance to discuss great writing in person, we hear you. You should book into a meeting of our online short story club. And if it's the books you want, don't forget there's a great range of fiction and non-fiction available through BorrowBox, RB Digital and Cloud Library. Check the show notes for some of the recent First Book Club authors and where you can find them. Happy reading! Happy reading!